Please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. So we are continuing today in Pastor Rich's series on the Ten Commandments with me beginning with the first commandment, as well as a little bit of the prologue. Um, So would you please stand with me for the reading of Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 through 3, and remember that it is not an accident that God brought you here today. This is a divine appointment for you with this word from God. May God instruct us this morning from it. Hear this word, Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray. Father, out of respect for your divine authority, we stand. And out of respect for you, we now beseech you to speak. You who are creator of heaven and earth, speak now to your people. Let the word of Christ himself abide in us through the power of your Holy Spirit. And we ask this in the name of the Father and in the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. It's a little bit um, trembling to preach on a text that has literally been preached on hundreds of thousands of times over the last two millennia. <laughs> uh, there's no end of the preaching of the Ten Commandments. But there is, I, I want to submit today that there is far more going on in the Ten Commandments than just a bunch of moral commands. And actually, the word command itself only appears once in the entire Ten Commandments. These are not called commands, though they are commands. (laughs) Rather, these are called words. They're ten words. They're ten sayings of God to his people. If you look right at the very beginning, and God spoke all these words, and by most long tradition, these have been called the ten words of God to his people. Why these ten sayings is what I want to explore some. Why these ten sayings? Well, it's not just so you can uh, memorize them and then feel shame for whenever you've broken them. (laughs) No, God is not a God of shame. And neither are these 10 sayings or commandments meant to beat you on the head and beat you over the head with a baseball bat. Rather, what's important as we enter into the 10 commandments over these next weeks is recognizing the context of the biblical storyline of what is going on here and framing the 10 commandments in that biblical storyline to help us understand what God is trying to communicate to us today through this most precious section of scripture. Now, earlier in the biblical storyline, there was another time when God gave 10 sayings. It's a little bit difficult to see in the ESV, but in the original, 
the first chapter of the Bible, the first chapter of Genesis, includes 10 times the language, then God said. 10 times. Through 10 sayings, God spoke the world into existence. A world that was meant to have him as king. A world in which women and men were to to flourish under his good kingship in the cosmic sanctuary, if I might say. But it didn't last, did it? (laughs) Human beings revolted against their king. They joined forces with with the serpent and and threw off God's kingship, his, his authority. And this this true story eventually led to his people being enslaved in Egypt. And so the book of Exodus, the very book that contains the Ten Commandments, the book of Exodus begins with, with brokenness. It begins with a fractured world. It begins with things that are not meant to be, in a sense. The people of God live, we find, under a harsh king, Pharaoh, one who uses his power and uses his authority to abuse the people. And under his hand, the people of God don't flourish, do they? They don't flourish as God meant them to flourish in creation. But as the story of the Bible shows us over and over and over, God intervenes doesn't he? God intervenes. And at the, at, just like at the beginning of creation, he spoke these 10 sayings to kind of bring creation into being. Now, now out of judgment on Egypt, he speaks 10 plagues over Egypt. He speaks 10 plagues over Egypt that essentially act as kind of undoing creation. He rips apart the fabric of creation through these plagues. He rips this apart in order to kind of reach in and rescue his people out of this enslavement that they're in. Ten plagues show the world that Yahweh is the true king of Israel. Ten plagues leave Egypt in tatters. The gods of Egypt shattered and Pharaoh, a defeated king. This is how powerful the God of Israel is. And all of this is packed into the very brief prologue of the Ten Commandments in verse 2. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is so important that before these commandments are given, before these 10 sayings of God, he reminds them of who he is, his character, the God who redeems his people, who actually undid creation, undid the fabric of creation to reach in and pull his people out and to redeem them. And now, now that he has redeemed his people, God can set up his kingship and a sort of, of recreation of his people happens with his presence among them. And so just like there were 10 sayings to create the world, 
and then 10 plagues that effectively destroyed the world, God now delivers 10 sayings again. What we call the Ten Commandments. And that, that these ten sayings come in and they reconstitute Israel as a nation. They recreate a new world with the kingship of God at the center of this. This is what's going on in the Ten Commandments. God is doing what any good king worth his salt in the ancient world does. After becoming king of a new people, the first thing a king would do is lay down principles of what his kingship is going to look like. He he shows the people how they're going to flourish best under his kingship. And this is exactly what's happening in the Ten Commandments. God is revealing to his people what kind of God and what kind of king he actually is. See, the Ten Commandments are really more about who God is than about moral injunctions to follow, though those are important to obey. Don't, I'm, not, I'm not minimizing that. I believe in the Ten Commandments. But the point is not the commandments. The point is who God is. The point is who this king is and what his character is and what God looks like and how, how as people interact with that, how they're going to image this kind of king. What's at stake is none other than beauty. God is forming a people, recreating a people who bear his image rightly in the cosmos. And when rightly practiced, beauty spills forth. Beauty comes out. And a new creation is formed with the people of God with the covenant before God. So, so where does God begin? Well, if you look at the Ten Commandments here, the Ten Sayings, God begins with himself, doesn't he? For just like in creation in Genesis 1, where that creation was meant to lift up and it climaxes in the rest of God, God being depicted as king over his creation, in this new creation of his people, God is once again seen as the center of everything. And he makes this very clear in this very first commandment. Look at verse 3. Memorize this with me. You shall have no other gods before me. You got it? Should we, do we need to try it again? You shall have no other gods before me. Now it's your turn without my help. That's good. You got it. You shall have no other gods before me. The testimony... Uh, throughout scripture is that there is only one true God in the universe, which we often describe with a very fancy theological word called monotheism, mono, one theism, God, one God. The, The prophet Isaiah especially makes this clear that there is no God in the entire universe besides the God of Israel. And for centuries, this first commandment has often been interpreted as referring to this doctrine that there is only one God. And so 
a, a, a typical application of the first commandment might be to, to look at your life and make sure that you're not making anything else God in, in your life around that. And, and this is all good and true. But I don't think it's actually what the first commandment's saying. I love monotheism. So don't cry out heresy. <laughs> monotheism is all over the Bible. But this is not actually what Exodus 20 verse 3 is trying to highlight to us. It's not exactly what God is trying to go after in this very first commandment. The key word here in verse 3 is before me. You shall have no other gods before me or literally in the presence of me. That, that is the right way to translate it. In some Bibles, your Bible may give some footnotes with some other options, but the best way to translate this is before me or in the presence of me. The question is, what does that mean? What's that actually mean? That preposition before me in my presence. We have to kind of step back a little bit and take off our 21st century hats and put on our ancient Near Eastern hats for a second and sit in a little stone wall room and think about that for a second. In the world around ancient Israel, everyone believed that lots of gods existed. You probably already know that. But what's important about that is that all these gods, they thought, were vying for power. And some gods rose to the top of kind of like a, almost like a pyramid-like scheme. Maybe they got a Mercedes Benz when they got to the top or something. It was then thought that, that the god at the top would basically pay off and, and bribe other gods by distributing some of their power so that they could stay at the top of the food chain. So there was essentially this belief, and and the Israelites would have come right out of this. There was this belief that there was kind of like a a power-sharing agreement going on between the gods. This god's kind of ruling, and he can kind of give a little power over here, a little power over here, and they're kind of working for each other and helping different, doing different things. And, And the key was people would do everything they could to kind of look into this power-sharing structure going on and and try to figure out how they could get a piece of the action and how they could kind of move the chess pieces around and, and get the gods to do what they want them to do. And they would find all sorts of ways to, to make this happen. The goal was to, to use other gods to then control your God and control the divine world and in turn really control your world and make things happen. In the first commandment, what's going on in the first commandment is that God is rejecting that entire system. He's rejecting it all. And it's shocking to an ancient Israelite. It's shocking. Have you ever heard something so startling and so kind of foreign to your understanding that you just have no idea what to do with it? You don't, you don't have any kind of box to put it in. 
And, and you're just kind of, you're frazzled. Like, I don't, I don't know how to handle this in my thinking. This is exactly how Israel would feel at this moment as God speaks this first saying. You know, they'd be sitting there thinking, what? Wait a minute. Doesn't, doesn't God share his power? Doesn't, doesn't, we, can't we just kind of pull the right strings and make things happen and, and the right little, little tiny gods will come out and make the big God do what he wants to do and he almost becomes like a puppet moving around and they're going to be like, what? Who, who is this God? What kind of God is this? See, God shows Israel here that, that he is not to be thought of in the way that everyone else thinks of their gods. By rejecting this world, God asserts in the first commandment that his authority as God is absolute. That's the first commandment. That his authority is absolute. That that having no gods before him means you shall not exercise control over the divine world because there is nothing in front of me that can manipulate me because I own everything. I am powerful, all-powerful, control everything. Nothing else can manipulate that. He does not and will not share his authority or share his power with anything or anyone else. As true as monotheism is, this first commandment, as I said, is not strictly about monotheism, but it's about, it's about God's authority. That's what's at play. It's about God's authority and power not belonging to anyone else, including all the spiritual beings of the universe and including you and me. God is reshaping his people through this commandment to live in such a way that accurately images God's authority and power. So, Michael, the natural question then is, what about, what about us? What's this mean for us? How should we obey this command? Or, or perhaps a better question might be, uh, what, what kind of people is God trying to recreate us into through this first command? Let me, let me suggest three things. There's more. Let me just suggest three key ideas that relate to this first commandment, especially in the ancient world, and has direct relevance for us now. First, since God's power and authority is absolute and and belongs to no one else, the first thing is that God is creating a people who give up power and control. He's creating a people who follow him, who, who give up power, who don't seize power, who don't, who don't hold on to it, who don't grasp for control. See, as I said, in the ancient world, this, this kind of pyramid scheme of gods really was about a system that could manipulate the gods for human power. And, and so you appease the gods to become successful. You appease the gods to become influential. You appease the gods to gain power and to get more power and to get more power. And God says no to all of that. He says no. And, 
And we are still tempted by these same things today, yet in a different way. We crave power and authority, both individually and even, if we're honest, as a church. We crave power. We crave influence. Now, now you may not think so, but we, but we do. It, it's, why we, it's why we fret about things like whether our political team is in charge or not. It's why we stress out about making sure our, our children are on the successful path that's going to lead them to, to being influential and having a great job and a great career and things like that. It's why we feel left out when we're not part of the, of the right group or the right influencers, what C.S. Lewis calls the inner ring that we want to be a part of. Or it's why, we, it's why we take pride in our degrees and titles and positions. Or even why, dare I say, we take pride in our theology, believing we got the right system of doctrine from, than other churches and we're going to be more influential because of that. And some of these things are... are uh, may not be wrong in and of themselves. I'm a big fan of good doctrine. <laughs> but the problem is, in all these things, our, our hearts, our hearts are, are quietly manipulating behind the scenes to, to put us in a place where we gain power and we gain authority and we gain influence to have control of our destinies. So we think. And, and the root really is we want control. We want control. We want control over our lives. We want control over our children's lives. We want control over our grandchildren's lives. We want control over the trajectory of our church. We want control over the trajectory of our country. We want control over the, tra- the trajectory of our careers. We want control, don't we? We're no different from ancient Israel. And this This is what God rejects in the first commandment. He calls his people to give up control, to give up power seeking, to give up the right, the right to be successful, to give up the right to have financial influence, to give up all these things that that we think will we'll bring about a, a vision of life that, that we want for ourselves or for our church or for our family. But in doing so, we, we grasp after power and authority that, that belongs only to God alone. What happened to Pharaoh when he did that? When he grasped for power and authority that did not belong to him? He lost an entire nation. That's what happened. Second, so that's the first. Second thing that God is doing here, God is also creating a people who do not abuse power or authority. So first he's, giving, he, he's calling people to give up that right to, to power and authority, and, and now he's calling people to not abuse authority or power. And 
Pharaoh, by the way, is also the foil of that. Pharaoh who steps in and abuses God's people with his authority. The first commandment shows us that any abuse of authority or power, any abuse of authority or power is an attack attack on the very character of God himself. Abuse parodies the beauty of God and violates his absolute authority that is good and life-giving. How we use our own power and positions of influence and authority reflects on who God is to the rest of the world. The world is watching if your name is Christian and seeing what God is like, whether it's a truth or, or a lie. This is why abuse, whether physical or sexual or verbal or emotional, this is why abuse is never a trivial thing. It's never trivial. There is a dark, sinister power at work that wants to twist leaders and twist those with power, even in the Christian world. And as Christians, we must must be the first ones to stand up against any abuse of any kind because the reputation of God's own power and authority is at stake. And and as you you well know, tragically, the, the American Christian church particularly is suffering much in this area over the last decades, isn't it? as report after report comes out. And often what we want to do is kind of put our, put our heads down and just pretend like those things aren't there. But we should be grieved. We should be repentant. The first commandment implores us to not brush these things aside as if they're just kind of political attacks to our team. God hates abuse. It, it's, my, I dare say, it's, it is not being woke to join God in hating abuse, brothers and sisters. As followers of God, we must not tolerate it, especially among God's peoples, even if they're close to our own theological uh, teams. Um, The first commandment will not tolerate it because God's authority and power is chief, and it is not to be mischaracterized by God's people. So God is forming first a people who give up power freely and give up their control Then he's forming a people through this commandment who refuse to abuse power. Finally, third, through this first commandment, God is recreating a people. He's reconstituting a people who rest and trust in God's power and authority alone, who find their rest there. The first commandment shows the people of Israel and us that God is absolutely in charge. And it shows us that we can trust him. 
We can trust his authority. There, there are no competitors for his power. There are no events in your life that can threaten God's absolute authority over your own life or the cosmos. See, we're, we are constantly tempted to think otherwise. At least I am. <laughs> this, is, this is why we need the Psalms. The Psalms that regularly teach us and regularly invoke to us a God who is a strong tower, a God who is a mighty refuge, a God who is a rock, a God who is a fortress for us. When God says, you shall have no other gods before me, in a sense, he's saying he alone can be trusted with all the loose ends of your life. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't lose control. I know some of you may have experienced abuse by powerful people in your life that have made you never want to trust again. Some of you have experienced painful tragedies and and suffering that made you doubt everything you know about God. Whatever painful roads you have traveled or are traveling right now, the Spirit of God God is saying to you through this very commandment, trust God, trust his power, trust his authority, trust what he is doing. He has not lost control. He's still good. His power and authority are not like the abusive and broken powers around us. God alone is in control of all things right now. He alone uses power for good. He uses his power for beauty. He uses his power for restoring and remaking all things. And that includes us. In reality, the first commandment is the path of following Jesus. The Christian way is one of following the crucified Messiah who gave up power, who did not abuse his power, and then trusted instead in the absolute power of the Father. So so consider Jesus who gave up power. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus, what? Though in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is the one we follow, who didn't grasp for power, who who literally gave up the universe in a sense to redeem us. Consider him who did not abuse power. In the Gospels, when Jesus goes out into the wilderness, Satan comes to him, right, and offers him all the power in the universe if he just would bow down and worship Satan. He he tells Jesus, just take your power, Jesus, and reach down to that rock and grab that rock with your power and authority and turn that rock into bread. 
And Jesus says, no, I will not abuse the power that rightly belongs to the Father. Consider him, finally, who rested and trusted in God's power and authority. Despite all the pain and horror that Jesus faced, he said to God the Father in the garden, not my will, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus trusted the Father's power to be good, even when it led to the cross. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the first commandment recreates us for following Jesus on a path, for following Jesus on a path that, that, that goes against the grain of the present world and all that the world is seducing us into thinking. It takes us on a path that might even lead us to share in the cross of Jesus. But the scriptures show us over and over and over that it is only on this path, it is only this path that that leads to the life of flourishing in the presence of God. And that, that is God's aim in the Ten Commandments. That is God's aim in the first commandment. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that the commandments would work their way deep down into our hearts and that we would see God rightly for who he is. We pray that you would unveil our eyes to see the glory and the greatness and the beauty of God's power and authority as rightly displayed through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ who we now share in. Make us a new people, O oh God. Make us a people who image you rightly. Make us a people who find our refuge in this kind of God. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.